Good evening, everyone. Live from our studio here in North Minneapolis, uh, this is Bright Lights, our weekly get-together where we meet and talk with achievers and people who have uh, achieved a certain amount of success in various uh, areas of human endeavor. And we share uh, their light, their bright light with you, our audience. Uh, today, our guest is going to be uh, Katrin Whitfall, a policy fellow at the um, Center for American Experiment. Uh, Katrin uh, is in an area that is so important to me, and that's the area of education. And as most of you know, that uh, I have uh, talked about four fundamental things to get to the root causes of a lot of issues facing our communities. Uh, that's uh, business development that leads to generational wealth, or to put it simply, put money in people's pockets. Uh, secondly, uh, quality education. Uh, thirdly, uh, rebuilding the family, strong families, I believe in that, strong two-parent families, as a matter of fact. And then just a return to our uh, foundation of faith. And so uh, education is one of those four pillows that I preach about a lot. And I don't even mean to use the word preach, but I guess I do. Uh, and that's why I'm excited to have this conversation tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about things like the achievement gaps and what's going on with this critical race theory and its impact on on education and and and, and in fact in the corporate world and the government world uh, why that's uh, uh, either good or bad. And, and to be honest with you, I think it's a bad thing. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, but before we go there. And bring our guest on. Uh, this past Sunday was Father's Day. Uh, I had my son, my youngest son, uh, who's here in the Twin Cities. My oldest son is out in uh, California, Hollywood, trying. He's breaking into the uh, entertainment industry and a professor at UCLA and all that good stuff. Uh, and my youngest son is here with my grandson, and, and we just had a great time over the weekend celebrating Father's Day. My little grandson has such a wonderful spirit about him. Uh, kind of reminds me, in a way, of my dad, uh, who had a wonderful and strong spirit about him. So I spent some time thinking about how my dad used to relate to my sons and all the little things he used to say and all the amusement and joy he got out of uh, my sons, who was his grandsons, and how I'm currently doing that with my grandson. I guess it's called the family circle. And I'd like to take a, just a minute uh, to uh, recognize my dad uh, for all the impact and uh, wonderful things he had uh, as far as my life is concerned that he gave me. Uh, my dad was someone who never complained. He never cursed. Uh, in fact, I was in my 40s when I thought about it. I, I had never even heard my dad argue a racist voice in my life. Uh, he never showed any fear or any anger. Uh, and I love the fact that we bonded out in the woods hunting or uh, gathering woods for, for the fireplace, uh, working on his car, uh, remodeling homes out in the garden. Those were the type of things that we bonded over. And he spent a lot of time uh, sharing uh, life lessons and knowledge and wisdom with me. Uh, one of the most memorable uh, things growing up and cherished experiences just the way my dad would turn to, me, turn to me and say, son, this, a son, that. And even now I try to do the same thing with my sons. And let me tell you something, people. There is nothing in this world as precious for me as 
being in the same home with my father, him being there every day, being my role model, uh, being my hero, uh, and looking at me and saying, son, this and son, that. And if we think we can replace that with some type of government program or some type of nonprofit program, we're kidding ourselves. And if we don't see the connection between fathers not being part of their children's lives, fathers not being in the homes, and I'm going to take it even further, fathers not marrying the mothers of their children. Uh, in fact, it reminds me of something that John Wooden says, and I agree with. The best thing a father can give to their children is to love their mother and not only love her and uh, marry her and stay with them and raise these children together. So that's that's my thing. Uh, that's my recognition of my father. That's the role he played in my life. Uh, I'll end it by saying everybody called him man, even though he didn't talk softly and carry the big stick. Uh, everybody called him man, uh, even my mom, uh, except down south, you know, the colloquial way of saying it is Maine, and his name was Maine and Maine Sylvester. So uh, this is in recognition uh, for my late father and uh, all the great things he did for me and how he really taught me uh, how to be a man. So. As I mentioned earlier, uh, our guest tonight is Katrin Wickfall. Uh, we'll be talking about education and getting into this whole uh, critical race theory and, and curriculum changes and things that they're planning on doing. We're going to talk about the educational achievement gap and a lot of other things of interest to uh, parents and our citizens out there. Uh, so, uh, hey, Katrin, uh, welcome to Bright Lights. I'm doing great, Lacey. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and before we get started here, I was talking about Father's Day, and I heard from a little birdie here that your husband, this time next year, will be celebrating Father's Day with a new addition to the family. Why don't you tell us about that, Catherine, before we get started on the uh, less serious stuff? <laughs> yes, so I'm currently about six months pregnant. We have our first baby joining us this September, a baby boy. So my husband joked this past uh, weekend that he we weren't going to celebrate Father's Day until next year after he's changed a few diapers and had some sleepless nights and that sort of thing. He hasn't. He doesn't feel like he's uh, really put in the work yet. So <laughs> and he hasn't put in the work yet. You're right. He got he got to earn this celebration and. Uh, <laughs> You mentioned uh, might be a September baby. Uh, let's let's hope that he's uh, born on September second. That's a very special day, and you know why, Katrin? Because that's my birthday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm all for it, Lisa. Okay. Uh, so congratulations again. Uh, let's start talking about you and what you do in your background. First of all, uh, let's talk about uh, where you're from, Katrin. Uh, uh, your family growing up and your influences growing up and things that may, may have predicted that you'd be doing what you're doing today. Sure, absolutely. So I actually grew up in a rural farm community in Wisconsin, and I graduated from high school in Minnesota, and then I went all the way out to California for college and then jumped across the country to Washington, D.C. and spent some time on Capitol Hill and working out there. And then back to the other side of the country where I taught fifth grade general education and sixth grade Latin in Phoenix, Arizona at a Title I charter school. 
and then popped back into California to work on education policy at the California Policy Center before coming back to Minnesota and convincing my uh, boyfriend at the time to, he wanted to see if our relationship was going to go anywhere. So when I got the job at American Experiment in Minnesota, he said, well, I guess I'm moving to Minnesota. So he left California, moved to Minnesota, and uh, only really regrets moving here about five days out of the year when the winter is really terrible, but otherwise very much enjoys it. So, <laughs> Well, you let him know when he's complaining about the winters being terrible, and Father Day is a theme somewhat here, that the weekend my oldest son was born, it was minus 81 degrees wind chill. Yep, so you just remind him of that. The other thing is that uh, you mentioned you were born in Wisconsin. Does that mean you are a cheesehead, Katrin? You know, I was wondering, Lacey, if that question was. Going of course, to it's going to come up. up. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, unabashedly a Packer fan, and okay. the president of American Experiment, John Hinderacker, uh, has two Packer fans actually in the office. Oh, uh, I have a fellow Wisconsinite. So now, whenever we're interviewing anyone, that is actually an interview question because. He does not want any more Packer fans in the office. <laughs> yeah, sound like he already has his quota of cheese heads there. Uh, <laughs> but I want you to know this. And this is true. Uh, they can get on your nerves and stuff like that. But I have a, have a certain fondness for any group of people who can sit or come out in public and sit around with a piece of cheese on their heads. And for some reason, uh, that just touches me. So uh, you mentioned... Happy. They're huh? heavy, by the way, too. They are heavy? Okay, yes. I thought they were little foam <laughs> things or something. They were light. Oh, they're heavy. Yes. Oh, I'm even more impressed now. So I, They'll be even more endearing to me. Uh, so you talked about moving around. You talked about, I heard you talk about uh, being in Washington, D.C. And as I looked into some of your background, I saw you had uh, some uh, a BA degree in political science and government. And I'm assuming that... Uh, for a person to major in political science and government, they have to have uh, a career uh, in that field in mind. Am I correct in that? You are correct, yes. So I, I did major in political science. I was actually anticipating going to law school once I received my bachelor's degree. And then my time in D.C. and talking to lawyers out there, they were a bit jaded and they convinced me maybe I should pursue a different profession. And so I did not think that I would ever have any classroom experience, but what's neat is I come from a family of teachers. And so when I started teaching in Arizona and explained my background and my story, it made sense to people that I went into teaching. But for me, that was never on the radar. <laughs> well, uh, me and my family spent some time out in the D.C. area, wonderful a city in a lot of ways, but as I grew older, I had a different perspective. Of it. So uh, when we get together, we'll exchange some DC stories and how everything went out there. Uh, currently, you are a policy fellow at the Center of American Experiment. Uh, why don't you tell us what is the Center for American Experiment? And yeah. then go, go ahead. Uh-huh. That's, that's a great question. We get, we get it often. So in, in a nutshell, we are a nonpartisan public policy organization, also called a think tank. And we were founded in 1990 by Mitch Perlstein. And so as a public policy organization, we do a lot of research and writing 
on policy issues in Minnesota, ranging from the economy to education to healthcare, uh, the family, employee freedom, state and local governments, you name it, we're working to make these policy issues better in Minnesota. And so we craft and propose solutions to these issue areas that really focus on key principles like the free enterprise, limited government, personal responsibility, and government accountability. I love all those things. And I should mention, and we'll hit on some of these areas that I was looking at some of the things that you care about, included children, civil rights and social action, education, which we already going to get into, health, human rights, of course, politics, uh, poverty alleviation and social service. So we're going to let's just let our audience know uh, that you are a person of wide uh, areas of concerns and, and things like that that you worked in. So that's great. OK, so let's t dive into some of the well, first of all, before we go there, uh, who is your audience for all these policy positions and papers and things that you write? And I'm assuming that uh, some of them are legislators, but and I'm yeah. And so, give us an idea of the audiences that you're intended to reach with these public policies. Sure. No. Yeah. Absolutely. We legislators are part of our audience. We do testify before legislative committees. But we also pride ourselves in the fact that thousands of individual Minnesotans across the state support our work. So as a nonprofit, we are donor funded. And so these Minnesotans are who we want to be kind of like a sounding board for on policy issue areas, both metro and greater Minnesota. So our audience then, we also reach through op-eds and newspapers and magazines. Uh, we appear on radio and television news programs, hold town meetings, uh, grassroots advertising campaigns. So yes, we want to share our ideas with legislators and policymakers, but we also want to share them with Minnesotans and equip them with the knowledge and resources that they need to understand what's going on in the state and efforts that we're doing to make the state better. Can the audience hear us now? Yeah. Okay. Like we're still live. Okay. Uh, hey, that's live. Uh, TV folks, and I was just asking my uh, audio engineer here, are we back on? And he said we are. By the way, this is about the third time I was telling him in the last week that power has gone out uh, at our office place here. And uh, I don't know what's going on, but normally it's been out, that's been time with four or five hours, and it will be out of eight hours, 10 hours. So we've been lucky. So, all right, Katrin. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll get through this, right? <laughs> we will talk about these important issues tonight. Just love live TV here, you know. Technical <laughs> difficulty now. We we're hoping our audience hung in there with us, and because we're getting ready to get into some good stuff. Okay, so we're getting ready to get into some of uh, all this these brilliant ideas and things that you're sharing, all the solutions to all the issues out here. And one of the first one I want to touch on is just the whole school choice issue. And uh, I was reading somewhere about the widespread support, and it only makes sense. And and I and I, I want our audience to know is that I'm a proponent of school choice, uh, and uh, we'll get into uh, our current public school system. I don't understand why we keep expecting for them these people to solve the achievement gap. They they just don't have what it takes. I don't care how many degrees they have, how many years of experience. Uh, when you got a governor who I call edu uh, educator in chief. He's actually hiring the head of the union to be over the Minnesota Department of Education. 
And anyone who really understands what's going on in our public schools know that the union, the teachers' union, they're a big part of the part of the problem. But and I'm upfront about that, keeping it a hundred. But tell us about uh, your work in school choice and what the polls show out there and those type of things. Yeah, we really see not only in Minnesota, but statewide or nationwide, too, that school choice is on the rise. It's popular. Parents are considering alternative learning environments for a variety of reasons, whether it's the fact that uh, COVID closed down their school and schools, public schools remained closed and distance learning just didn't work out well for their student, whether it's curriculum concerns, they're seeing what their students are or aren't learning in class. So families are really exploring other learning environments for a variety of reasons. And we have focused on school choice at American Experiment for the past 30 years and what we call real school choice, which should mm -hmm. include private and religious schools. And so we're really seeing popularity for school choice on the rise. There are polls that confirm that. And we're realizing that families are desperate for these options, but can't always access them. Right. There are sometimes barriers in place that prevent them from leaving their neighborhood school district, whether that's a financial barrier, transportation issues, that sort of thing. And so this past legislative session, there was a provision in the Senate education bill called education savings accounts that would have allowed families to access a different learning environment than their public school and use the dollars that they pay as taxpayers to cut the cost or help with the cost of that. And we had, uh, there were a lot of great efforts to promote that. And uh, there were great organizations that rallied behind it. I think of the Exodus MN, and there were press conferences that were held and a lot of attention was drawn to the fact that parents want this. This whole provision was parent-led. And unfortunately, we found out last night that it did not make it into the final version of the education omnibus bill. However, it has started the conversation and we will continue to put pressure on state leaders to expand educational opportunity in Minnesota. Because as you mentioned, test scores and our achievement gap just show that not every student thrives in the same learning environment and they shouldn't be limited to a one size fits all model. Well, a couple of things you mentioned there. First is the COVID. And, you know, I, I get around the community quite a bit. And I heard a lot of complaints about the public school system just not meeting their needs and requirements. And on a personal level, I saw what some of the policies, the impact, it was negative impact. It was having on my grandson. And that's what really got me even more interested in it. But you also mentioned Exodus, Minnesota. And, you know, I'm just curious about things most of the time. And I did a little uh, peep work on Exodus, Minnesota. And what uh, caught my attention is that uh, there's a lot of black moms out there uh, involved in Exodus, Minnesota, Exodus, Minnesota. I don't know whether they found it or what, but if you really know what's going on, and anyone who really knows what's going on, it would not surprise you that there are black mothers out there that are saying we got to do better and we're looking for different choices and what we're being offered now. So tell us a little bit more about Exodus, Minnesota, uh, its history and uh, its makeup. Because like I say, I saw I just saw a lot of black mothers out there uh, uh, in Exodus, Minnesota. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from my understanding, it's it's a fairly recent organization that was started by uh, five Black moms who are committed to educational excellence for all students, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what school setting that's in. And they all have children. Many of them have children in the Minneapolis and St. Paul public school system. And through COVID and even before that, they realized that their students' needs weren't being met and that their student needed to access a different learning environment. And so they've been really pushing for school choice as a, as a nonpartisan issue. They, I love that they have signs that we've used at school choice rallies saying, you know, united for choice, choice means hope. Uh, parents should be empowered to make the decision for their child that is best. And so they have really come together and, and been the face of this push for expanding educational opportunity and of course are supported by hundreds of other parents from a variety of backgrounds and communities, other organizations, American Experiment like ours has been proud to partner with them. And it's unfortunate that state leadership has refused to acknowledge their voices and even have a meeting with them about what they're asking for because they're really pleading and begging state leadership and no parent should have to beg for their child to be able to get an excellent education. And, and that's where they're at right now. And so it's, uh, it's really important and urgent that state leadership considers what these parents are asking because children cannot wait and they have been waiting for too long. And the longer we wait, the more, the students who fall through the cracks and these parents uh, want better for their children and other children as well. So Katrin, would it be safe to assume that part of the state leadership, quote unquote, that refused to meet with these moms uh, were, was indeed our educator in chief, Governor Walsh. Am I safe to assume that? Well, and it does not surprise any of us that uh, a person like Governor Waltz, who appoints the president of the teachers union as head of the MDE, would not want to meet with anyone who want to better choices in education uh, to compete with them. And, and, you know, look, I hear a lot of excuses why people aren't for choice. But what I say to, especially people in education, what I say to them, well, look, let's give people choice and prove to us that you can do better than them. You know, what are you afraid of? If, if what you're saying is true, at the end of a few years, we will say, oh, well, no doubt you're right. Uh, the public school system is the best place. And we do need to keep this monopoly, this this unperforming monopoly uh, uh, in education with our children. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that uh, he would not meet with you at all. And uh, the other thing is that I tell people, look, we've heard all these excuses. We need more money. We need smaller class size. And I'm going to try to keep this at PG-13 level at least. And we all know there's a bunch of popcock. I mean, it's just a bunch of, come on, give me a break. And I'm telling our audience out there right now, you can give these people a billion dollars. And there's certain parties, uh, uh, certain of our children that they would not educate because they just do not, do not understand what it takes to educate these children. And that whole type of, ooh, that whole type of liberal philosophy on education and the way they look at our community and our children, uh, that's part. That's the biggest hurdle, I think. So anyway, I'm not gonna get too much in, in on my soul 
box uh, with the education. Uh, let's talk about the achievement gap. Uh, do you have any numbers that kind of uh, quantify the achievement gap? Because my background is engineering, and I always start off with numbers and data and a of logic to, to come to some conclusions as far as how we address these issues. But give us some type of, uh, of numbers that quantify this achievement gap, uh, Catherine. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I would be remiss to not say that a lot of the, the all of the numbers that I'm mentioning are uh, through publicly available data and they can you can viewers can learn more about it through my education report allergic to accountability, which is available at AmericanExperiment.org. But it's important to know when we're talking about Minnesota's achievement gap, it's not just the achievement gap between white and black students or white and other students of color that obviously is there. But there's also a gap based on on income. So a gap between students from low income backgrounds and then their their wealthier peers. So if we look at the test results from our 2019 statewide tests, which are the uh, Minnesota Comprehensive Assessments, the MCAs, we see in fourth grade reading a 35 percentage point achievement gap in proficiency between white and black students. And these achievement gaps are also just as wide and concerning on national tests. So when we look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress or the NAEP reading test, the scores of black and white fourth graders had an achievement gap of 26 percentage points. And we see that both with reading and both with math. And we've also seen in Minnesota that over the last five years, the math achievement gap on our state test scores has widened by two percentage points in grade four and nearly two percentage points in grade eight. And then this gap, though, what's also concerning is it's paired with declining test scores for both white and black students in Minnesota. So again, student performance is stagnant. It's in decline. Our gap isn't budging. And I should also note that in my report, I talk about gap closures going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So if we look at third grade reading proficiency, we see that maybe the gap between white and black students in 2015 can be calculated as a certain percentage and the gap in 2019 between these same groups of students is smaller, but that's not because both groups of students are improving and becoming proficient readers. It's because white students' scores are in decline and black students' scores have, have barely moved. And so something is going on, something is not working, no matter how much money we throw at the problem, because there has been so much research to show over the years that how you spend money matters far more than how much you spend. And there are several other states that are outperforming Minnesota and serving their students of color better. I think of Mississippi, you mentioned Mississippi, Mississippi Black and Hispanic students outperform Minnesota Black and Hispanic students in both math and reading, and Mississippi serves a larger student body of Black students than Minnesota. So we obviously have some things to figure out with our education system, and uh, just more money is clearly not the solution. Well, I think uh, some of it, without me even doing any research, based on what I know, uh, when you start defocusing reading, math, uh, history, civics, and you start focusing more on social justice and history and 
and how and white privilege and how racism and stuff, of course you're gonna turn out students of all races and backgrounds and demographic who know less about that. Now they'll be able to uh, tell you about uh, social justice and things like that, but they won't be able to read. Uh, in fact, you know, this is a good time for me to say why I'm one of the reasons I'm so uh, passionate about this subject. Like I said, we uh, were running a, a small company that taught uh, inner-city children to improve their reading and science and math and stuff like that. And this one young ninth grade female, beautiful young lady, full of energy, came in in the ninth grade and we did a reading assessment and she was reading at the first grade level and that just broke my heart and my heart is still broken behind it and i'm not as careful to not to offend anybody in this area because there's a lot of people need to be offended here and need to be held responsible and accountable for it so i broached some of the changes uh, that's going on in the field of education. And we're going to talk about this whole woke revolution. And then we're going to talk about, you know, the, the elephant in the room, I think, is this whole critical race theory. Uh, so in our public school system, and even some of our private schools and colleges and things, just our whole education system, uh, they've come up with this whole idea of critical race theory that's affecting curriculum and de-emphasizing certain things. And basically, as I see it, our children are already performing way below efficiency level in just about every other area. And the leadership in education, they've run out of excuses of explaining it. So now what they're gonna do is give us a double whammy. Your kids don't know anything, but listen to us people. The reason they don't know anything is because of uh, discrimination and racism and history and, and the history of America. And that just upsets me more because I know what our children can do when we get rid of, boy, I don't know, in other words, when we get rid of that kind of foolish foolishness about that's involved in critical race theory. So give us uh, some information uh, about what, you've seen and what you see coming down the road uh, in our schools and, our, and what are the challenges for us who don't want to have the negative impact of critical race theory in our educational institutions. Right, the negative impact and also the very limiting lens that students are now being taught to view yeah, themselves and society yeah, through. It's extremely limiting. It is. And it so, is. We've really seen with critical race theory that it's it's fast becoming America's new institutional orthodoxy, and it's being implemented everywhere. And and I focus particularly on how it's popping up in education. And I think it's important to note that critical race theory has been around for a while as an academic discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, it branched off of critical theory, critical legal theory, which says basically that all of society should be looked at and understood through the lens of identity politics. So there have been academics and, and other scholars who have written about it for a while, but we've really seen it 
seemingly appear to pop out of nowhere recently. And that's because it is being taken and applied now in very concerning ways that have parents from, from all backgrounds and across the political spectrum concerned. And when you look into the political premises of CRT, that is where the concern starts, right? Because mm-hmm. critical race theory, it builds on this intellectual framework of class-based Marxism, Marxism, mm-hmm. which focused mm-hmm. on class conflict. And so CRT is being rebranded as race-based Marxism, identity-based Marxism, this whole idea of white versus black, that you have simplistic groupings that label people as the oppressed or the oppressor. And this, of course, pits different groups of people against each other. It's very divisive. And then, as you noted, it CRT also views all systems in society through a lens that they were built on oppression, that the idea of that racism is everywhere, that it's embedded in every single part of all systems. And so we have to completely uproot all institutions and founding principles of America and destroy those things that rather that's the culture, the ideas, the institutions, and really replace them with a a racial hierarchy in which entire racial groups are either monolithically good or bad. And so it's important to note that where we're at right now with CRT, it's, it's more than just an academic debate. Yeah. There are efforts to to take critical race theory and turn it into a, really a revolution that changes society culturally and socially. Yeah, and the interesting part about it, you mentioned Marxism and stuff. We tried that before, <laughs> and uh, somehow we don't seem to have learned our lesson. And you're right because it's become part, in large part, of the corporate culture. Uh, even here, this is, is sneaked its way into the Department of Defense and all areas, and I'm just concerned about it uh, because I see what it does to our community when you relieve people of personal responsibility and personal accountability. And I've seen what personal responsibility and personal accountability does when you instill that in people, and I got experience with it. Uh, working with our young people, and they 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 welcome it uh, openly. Say, I'm going to hold you accountable. I don't want to hear about society and, uh, and history and all that stuff. This is what you need to do. And I just get such great responses from uh, our young people when I do that. Uh, even in the barbershop, like I was today, got some great responses on personal responsibility and accountability. And I think that's an opportunity for us to present that to people because really, you know, you really feel good about yourself when you're meeting your responsibilities and, account- and you're being accountable. And even though it's hard work, and, and, and look, there's a lot of little dots we connect with this, but you know, if you're feeling good about yourself, you're less likely to go out there and hurt other people and commit crime and things like that. So I, I, I just have a very serious problem with this whole critical race theory. And I hope that enough of our people don't get fooled and doped by this, this I don't even want to call it that, but this, no, it's like refund, defunding the police. It's nonsense. I mean, it's just total nonsense. Okay, uh, so what do we need to do? Well, let's back up a second. Uh, so the critical race theory, as far as education is concerned, the CRT, uh, is having an impact on our curricula also. Explain to uh, our audience and parents out there who have children uh, in the school system, what are the type of things going on with curricula in our schools and our colleges uh, that we really should be aware of and uh, 
take the appropriate steps on. Right. Awareness is, is the first key step, but uh, getting that parents to recognize what critical race theory looks like is also important because when I talk about how we're seeing it kind of creep into education and standards and curriculum, all critical race theory inspired efforts aren't going to just be called critical race theory. And that is because uh, Marxism and neo-Marxism is a hard sell with people. We, Like you said, we've seen countries that have tried it and have failed at it. So critical race theorists are, are really masters of language. And they use a, a series of euphemisms to describe CRT, mm -hmm. such as equity, diversity, inclusion, social justice, words that, that sound non-threatening and that would make anyone who opposes that seem ridiculous, right? We all want students mm -hmm. to feel included, we want to celebrate diversity. But the problem is that these words don't get at the political premises of CRT. And that is what is was very, is very concerning about how we see CRT in real world application. And so the three ways that we're seeing these CRT inspired ideas creep into schools is through race essentialism, uh, collective guilt, and neo-segregation. And so whether that's staff meetings in Minneapolis public schools that I've been told by teachers have been uh, segregated into one staff meeting for staff of color, one staff meeting for white staff, uh, whether that's books, children's books that children are reading that tell them, oh, uh, all police officers only like white people, they don't like black men. Um, all of these are, are the, the very limited uh, lens through which critical race theorists and its supporters want children to view themselves and the world. And so for parents to get involved, they have to recognize what this looks like and how it and how it pops up because it's not going to be always blatantly out there it's going to be very subtle and we've seen the kind of the trickle down effect from crt being injected into higher education and now coming into k-12 education so one way though that we're seeing some of this language and this push for multiple perspectives even though it's really only one perspective coming down the pipeline is through our state's social studies standards revisions that are currently underway. And this is a process that the Department of Ed and its handpicked social studies committee, uh, the Department of Ed obviously with uh, Governor Walz's Department of Ed, they are they're using the social studies revision process to replace academic knowledge and skills with the cultivation of politically correct attitudes yeah. and views. And, and it's very concerning because this will shape how students learn about social studies for the next 10 years of their life. So parents can get involved in the feedback period for the social studies standards revision process. American Experiment has followed that closely at raiseourstandardsmn.com. And then once those standards are approved, they'll go to the school board, the local school board, and that school board will be involved in textbook selection, curriculum selection. And so it's really important for parents to get involved at the local level as well, because what textbook is selected will frame whether or not students learn a revisionist history or a complete and actual history, warts and all, of America's faults and failures but a history that doesn't stop there, right? That, right. that doesn't mm -hmm. keep students in this victimhood view of themselves. Right. And, you know, uh, I've been very upfront about my distaste for CRT. 
But you know, once again, I'm a results oriented person and I might be a little less, find it a little distasteful if it was actually proven our reading proficiency, our math proficiency, but as we talked about earlier, not only is it not improving, there's a lot of cases going down, and the other water population across the board, those type of proficiencies going down, uh, have a downward trend, and there is a connection there. Uh, we talked about curricula a little bit. Uh, there is, and I haven't really done my homework in this area, but I I, I am aware enough to know that they are doing some things with sex education curricula here in Minnesota. Do you know anything about that, Katrin? And what can you tell us about that? Which sounded scary to me also. But what do you know about that? And what can you tell us about that? That That is a bit concerning as well. That There was legislation for that uh, at the legislature that hasn't gone anywhere. There was a House bill, but uh, there was no Senate companion um, the American experiment has looked into it a little bit, but I would, I would direct individuals to the child protection league CPL. They've really okay. dug into, uh, what the sex education, comprehensive sex education, as it's being called would teach children, the books that are being used, which are, uh, endorsed by Planned Parenthood and that sort of thing. And so they have really followed that well and, and have great resources for parents wanting to learn more specifically about the push for it. But I will note that many parents may not be aware that they can opt their child out of health education, sex education. And so uh, American Experiment is working on providing parents those resources so they can access the opt-out form because based on Minnesota state law, a parent has the right to notify their school's principal and say, you know, my child will not participate in this sex health education class and will have to receive uh, alternative materials instead to complete. So uh, that is an option for parents to be aware of as well. But I would encourage them to check out the Child Protection League if they want to learn more specifically about, about that. Oh, okay, and, and, and I'm going to check that out also because I saw some documentation on it, and if it's true, I just couldn't believe it. Uh, what they were planning on teaching children in elementary school, and once again, to be a 100 on with everyone, and I mentioned our educational system, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I just remembered uh, in the ninth grade, as a matter of fact, uh, Jim, our coaches showed us the a film of a childbirth. And at the ninth grade, that kind of was freaking me out. And I didn't know exactly how to handle that. And I can imagine what it's going to do to our uh, children who are in elementary school and the type of stuff that I saw that they were planning on, on, on doing. Uh, so... What we've been talking about, I think, Katrin, and in a way, is there's some type of indoctrination that's been going on, and people, and it's subtle, unless you really know what's going on. I mean, when you find young people, and I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm a, I am an old school guy though, and and I do respect uh, generational differences. But when you hear some of the young people uh, talking about things like defunding the police and critical race theory and uh, the indoctrination that they're going through, it, it gets kind of scary. And it's no wonder that uh, when you put in uh, uh, leadership from a certain generation that's been indoctrinated with this stuff from day one uh, in education, 
in the media, in pop culture, everywhere around. And to be honest with you, I, I, I paid, paid uh, good attention to my uh, children growing up, but I have one in that 30th range, and they even got to him. I mean, some of the things that he believes, I'm just like, wow. And, you know, to be honest with you, looking back on it, uh, and you have to understand we're from a culture where parents are in control. They're the authority. You don't come home. I would not, never dare have come home and try to tell my mom and dad what the teacher said was right and wrong. And just looking back on it, I just realized that, you know, uh, when my some of my children was growing up, they come home and tell me, well, the teacher say this is right. This is you shouldn't be doing this. And that really was the signal a lot of times. And and, and so it's really the I think it's screwed up a whole generation. And I'm concerned where we are headed with the country. And, it, and like you say, it's just so subtle. And that's why when you got a leadership from a certain generation, they think the answer to is to defund the police and all that kind of um Boy, I'm trying to stay away from the word silliness, but it's, I'm finding it hard to do. Uh, that's why you find uh, all, all that. And uh, I don't know how do we, I guess, Catherine, when you think about it, can we turn back the tide on that? Uh, uh, we looking into the future where we got all these uh, woke people with all these crazy ideas that's going to harm. And my concern is harming my community. And I know what I know it's going to harm my community. Uh, is there any way to uh, hit this off or reduce the impact of it? Are we uh, in the Alamo here and uh, we got to fight our way out or something? Uh, what do you think about that, Catherine? We're, we're definitely in an uphill battle. Right. And I, I would like to have hope that we can turn this around. Uh, I, I believe that we have truth on our sides and truth prevails through darkness. And I think that really pushing back against critical race theory and, and all it's about has to come down to messaging, language, uh, the use of stories. Stories and examples are extremely powerful of, of parents and students who are, are facing this in real world experiences. So that real world application piece is key and really help America understand that no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, pushing back against this is is realizing that teaching children to disregard character and to measure people's relative worth on the basis of skin color or sex or other variable characteristics doesn't create a healthy environment. It doesn't help children develop into good citizens. It doesn't help us do the hard work of restoring and reconciling society. And so we can all unite around that. And I think that communities who have engaged in grassroots activism, who have reached out to local school boards are a key vessel in, in pushing back on this and standing up for, for all students. Now, I, this isn't obviously to say that, that racism doesn't exist or that we should not teach that racism is wrong or that we should not teach an honest assessment of our history. When our history is told well, it doesn't omit America's faults. But how, again, critical race theory does this, it's not done in an appropriate manner. It's done in a way that harms children intellectually and psychologically and, and really pushes them to view them, their self-conception in a limited way and that of society. And when we divide society and, 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 and don't emphasize our common humanity, 
and focus on tribalism instead. We actually reject all of the methods and the goals of the civil rights movement. We call things into question like equality, rationalism, and human rights that really should unite us all as Americans. And so I think continuing to, to hone in on the key uh, ideas and political premises of CRT and then how we're seeing it in action because stories are powerful. And, and I'm hopeful that that will show individuals that you can have good intentions, right, with supporting critical race theory and, and wanting to address racism. But we all know that even good intentions lead to bad ideas. And these bad ideas are, are harming our future generation of leaders. So uh, on in that area, and I'm going to put out an honest challenge to anyone out there uh, who are proponents of critical race theory to come on my show and let's discuss it. Uh, I'm challenging uh, anyone uh, in this country who's in charge of public education to come on and let's discuss how it's educating certain children from communities of color in inner city and poor communities. And I think I can expose them for the incompetent approach that they're taking and why these issues aren't getting any better in these communities and why, as you pointed out, they're going to keep getting worse. And that is not, as we talked about, related to the amount of money you're receiving and all these other things that you want to distract us on. It has to do with your mindset as a leader in educating these children. And once again, I'm speaking from experience and I know we, our children can learn and perform in all areas of human endeavor, just like any other children. I don't care what kind of rich community you're from or whatever. And I'm, and I know that it's, we can educate our children with, without excuses. And it doesn't matter whether, and because anytime I hear an educator talk about we need more parent involvement to educate these children, I'm like, you don't get it. Because I know that there are some parents out there right now that can't be involved. And you should be able to educate those children anyway. And I'm saying to all those out there with your PhDs, and I've talked to a lot of them that's teaching our administrators, our principals out there, give me those children that you say that's failing. Give me that money. Once again, it's school choice. And I will guarantee I will educate these children. In fact, I'll go even further. Give me the children, the money, and a chalkboard and a piece of chalk. And I'll educate every one of them better than you're doing. And when I say educate, I mean when you graduate from high school, you're reading at a high school level. When you graduate from high school, you are no math at a, a, a high school level. Right now, that is not going on. So I challenge everyone out there, and once again, especially in Minnesota, including our governor, I call him our educator-in-chief. When he leaves office, it's going to be even worse. The education achievement gap, uh, when they leave office, is going to be even worse. Uh, and, I, and I predict that. Anyway, I didn't mean to get on my soapbox there, but I see uh, the impact that it's having on our community. And the sad part about it, when you start off with an achievement gap, it leads to a life achievement gap. When you start off with an education achievement, it leads to a life achievement gap. And then we got these people rigging all these false reasons and excuses where the achievement gap is there. Now, it, 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 now, a lot of it lies on you 
for not educating our children properly. But there's other things. So anyway, uh, I had to get on a soapbox there and get that out of my system because it's dear to me and I just love our children. So and I hate it when people aren't doing their jobs in educating our children. And we as voters, and uh, I'm, we don't hold them accountable either. We keep putting the same people, type of people in there. And I'm not going to get into politics and stuff like that. We keep putting the same type of people in charge of these things. And we keep getting worse results. And voters just keep putting them in there. And so I'm just upset about that. And I know our audience need, our audience need to know that. Okay. So this has been very, very wonderful, Katrin. Uh, we will have a follow-up. Uh, what I always like to have uh, our guests do is uh, comment on any area that uh, you wanted to comment on, but I was not uh, smart enough uh, uh, as a host to bring it up. Uh, do you have any of those such areas, Katra? I'd actually just like to say a final remark on what we've been talking about with, with critical race theory and, and that sort of thing. And that is that it's personal for me in the, in the sense that uh, my husband is black, my, my child will be of mixed race. And so I would hate to have my child be in an education system that would teach him that I am an oppressor and that his father is oppressed. Uh, that would limit his dad that his, and say that his identity begins with his skin color. That's the most important thing about himself. And so there are a lot of individuals who recognize that these ideas are harmful and want to stand up for all students and realizing that we can and must hold students to a high bar of excellence. Uh, that is something that we are, are lacking on in our education system and it's leaving students behind and really doing a disservice to them and the future role that they'll play in society. Yeah. Well, I tell people now, and if you're, uh, you know, when I, the people that raised me, they did not talk to me about those type of things, all the obstacles in life and the racist people out there and the horrible things that happen to people out. What they had me focus on is me being the best person I could be and being responsible and accountable. And I thank God that that's what they did because I feel for our children nowadays when all they hear all day, every day, where because of your skin color, you can't do this, you aren't gonna make it. And, and the whole world is stacked against you. And that's what they hear. And I see when they hear a different message just a change in the looks where, hey, look, in America, you can be whatever you want to be. And I'm here to tell you how to do it. And no, it's not going to always be fair. It's not always going to be easy. And I can testify about that. But in the long run, you can basically, and, and, and you know, once again, as a techie, uh, we know there's nothing that's 100%. There's always that odd percentage, small percentage that happen. But generally speaking, if you set your goals, you work hard, you're committed, you're tenacious, and you're willing to put in the time and the sacrifice. And I'm a, I'm a testimony. And the people I grew up with are a testimony to that. You can achieve uh, in this country, in life, in the world. And that's the message I like to always uh, give to our children. And it's, it, it has been such, such a powerful thing for our children. And I tell people, uh, you can see almost a smile come on their face 
when they hear that from someone who believes in them, who care for them, and who's not giving them an excuse about the, the world is bad and full of bad people. So once again, uh, Catherine, I really appreciate uh, your time here. Uh, good luck on your newborn baby boy. I hope he's born on September 2nd, but even if it's not, I hope he's a Virgo. And we will be uh, talking to you soon. And oh, and by, by the way, make sure you send me a picture of this young man uh, once he's born. I'm going to hold you to that and say hi to your uh, husband and congratulations again. And thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Lacey. This has been great and yeah. uh, hope to come back. <laughs> yeah. Have a great evening. Thank you. You too. Okay.